Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, so welcome everyone. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, there are a few seats at the front. People at the back uh, want to sit down for the next hour. And yeah, so if people could just make sure there's space, that'd be great. Um, thank you all for coming to join us for this conversation. So four years ago, nearly, Ensuring that opportunity would be spread more evenly across the country was, of course, a central plank of the Conservative manifesto, alongside that head headline pledge to get Brexit done. Well, Brexit is certainly done, in a manner of speaking, but we're here today to discuss what progress has been made on that second key commitment to level up every part of the United Kingdom. And since then, what have we had? Well, we've had a, a levelling up white paper, 12 levelling up missions, there's a levelling up fund, there's a levelling up department and secretary of state, um, and there's a levelling up and regeneration bill that I think still limping its way through parliament. But has all this activity made a difference in terms of turning around the outcomes that levelling up is supposed to be about? Do the Conservatives actually have a credible story to tell about progress made so far and, and what more could be achieved over the next 12 months or however long there is up until the election. Those are the questions we are here to discuss today. My name is Akash Pound, I'm, I'm Programme Director at the Institute for Government and uh, delighted to be chairing this event, which we're hosting in partnership with Atkins Realis, the design, engineering, and project management organization. Um, thank you very much to Atkins Realis. We have a representative from whom we will hear shortly for, for their support of this event. Um, today's discussion also builds upon three previous events um, that we, the IFG and Atkins Realis, have held over, over the past few months to explore specific different aspects of levelling up. So in Manchester a few months ago, we discussed transport policy and we heard how poor connectivity, both within northern regions and between north and south, continued to hold back economic growth. Obviously, very live topic at this conference. But we also heard how devolution was starting to enable places like Greater Manchester to develop transport systems that better link where people live with where they need to get to to work or study. And just last week, of course, we saw the, the launch of the new B network buses as part of that drive to create a more integrated transport system. Then in Darlington, we held an event to discuss the opportunities and challenges of net zero. And we heard how the Northeast and Tees Valley was betting on renewable energy and green industry as a, as a core element of its strategy for, for regeneration in, in places like uh, the Tees Work Zone on, uh, in, in, in Tees Valley. But we also heard, again, a topical issue, I think, how inconsistency or uncertainty about the national policy context could undermine the, the development and, and implementation of long-term investment plans. And then lastly, in Liverpool, we discussed skills policy and heard how low and, and variable qualifications levels were a key uh, cause of, of regional disparities. 
Again, we heard how devolution was starting to help by enabling local leaders, Metro Mayor's combined authorities to reshape their skill system in light of local business needs. And we'll be hearing more about how that's playing out, particularly in West Midlands, um, during the discussion to follow. So um, those, I think, are some of the, the, the big uh, themes of the discussion I'm sure we're going to have. And I'm now pleased to introduce our excellent panel. So joining us, first of all, uh, to my right, Margot James, who's former MP for Stour Bridge, minister for a few years in Department of Business and then Department for Culture, Media and Sport, now works at the University of Warwick. Welcome, Margot. Thank you. Thanks for, for joining us. Um, to my left is Dr. Fiona Aldridge, who's Head of Insight and Intelligence at West Midlands Combined Authority, working closely with the Mayor Andy Street on skills and wider economic strategy. Fiona, thanks for being here. Um, to my far left is my colleague, Tom Pope, Deputy Chief Economist at the IFG and uh, our Northern resident uh, based here in Manchester. Um, to my right, sitting here, Vicky Hutchinson from Atkins Realis, Director of the Environment Practice. Thank you for being here. And to my far right, Ben Bradley, MP, MP for Mansfield, leader of Nottinghamshire Council and candidate now confirmed for the new post of East Medlands Mayor, subject to passage of the levelling up bill, I think still, which may or may not come up. <laughs> so Ben, I'd like to start with you actually. Um, I mean, what progress do you think the government can point to in terms of levelling up? And also how important is devolution to places like the East Midlands if, um, if those big ambitions and missions are actually to be delivered? Um, really good question. I think um, we have made a strong start, if I'm honest, and I think we should uh, not shy away from being proud of that. We have uh, started to shift the dial on a cultural conversation within government and within our economy about what we value and prioritise. And it used to be uh, which areas tick the Treasury's um, boxes in terms of you know value for money, inevitably always um, London and the, the South East. Uh, and places like mine uh, could never tick those boxes with the land values that weren't there, the returns that weren't there, and central government investment didn't happen. Um, and in the past four years, my constituency of Mansfield, which is a former coalfield post-industrial um, community, uh, one of those in inverted commas left behind places, um, and has very much felt so, has had more interest and more uh, capital investment, certainly from central government, than ever in living memory. I can point to uh, nearly 75 million of specific levelling up funds for uh, our communities and uh, double that when it comes to wider projects from across government that are Mansfield and, and place specific. Um, and there's also a huge and uh, really positive story to tell over the last 13 years around educational standards, um, particularly in communities like mine, where um, the number of um, good schools, the level of educational attainment has been really poor and very far behind the rest of the country. And that has improved tenfold uh, in the last few years. So I think it's important to recognise uh, the start that we've made and the value of that when it comes to uh, particularly young people and future opportunities in my part of the world. Um, but real change is long term, right? It doesn't happen in four years. Um, and a lot of the projects, um, you know, even the capital funds that we've got now uh, are you know, going to build some stuff. The real impact of that 
uh, and the skills uh, change that we're having, the job opportunity changes that we are implementing uh, will take some time. So I think it's important, and it's one of the themes of this conference really is, um, you know, the long the long term plan has come back in all the branding, which is nice. Um, and to talk about how we build on what we've done and what the long-term opportunity of that is. I think it's absolutely right that uh, devolution is at the heart of that, which also, of course, is something we've delivered as a government over the last 13 years. Um, people have talked about it. We've had the most centralised economy, most centralised decision-making structure in the Western world. Conservative government have done it, and so many of the solutions to the inequalities uh, that exist in our communities have to be locally led. They have to be driven by a local place and a need um, and cannot be managed in a, a one-size-fits-all way by central government. So you see the examples, regardless of which parties in power and, and uh, devolved command authorities, of the impact they can make on skills, on transport, on jobs, uh, and the things that change long-term opportunities. So um, really exciting project in the East Midlands. Uh, we've been the lowest invested um, region in the UK for decades, everyone talked about the northeast, but we get even less. Uh, and we are historically been that place you go past or through on the train on the way to the north. Um, but that's changing, and we've got an exciting pipeline of projects, particularly again focusing around some of those you know jobs of the future. To coin a phrase, clean energy, hydrogen, fusion, nuclear, modular reactors, big industries like Rolls Royce and Toyota who are working in those spaces, uh, and huge inward investment opportunities that we can harness through devolution. Um, and I've talked about. Uh, Step Fusion, which is an incredible project in Nottinghamshire. Um, limitless clean energy, if we get it right. Fusion's a project people have been talking about for a long time, but closer than ever. Uh, if we get it right in terms of the science, then you know Nottinghamshire will power the world again, like we did when we were down the pits and keeping the lights on. Uh, if we don't get it right, we'll still get billions of pounds of investment in our skills and transport infrastructure and jobs and opportunities for kids in my constituency. And the power of the mayor and the devolution element of that, I think, is not just the inward investment and the package and drawing people into it, but how you wrap around that, the skills and training opportunities that make it a long-term option for people in, in those communities. How you wrap around that, the transport connectivity that can get people from you know the, the poorest estates in Mansfield to those jobs and to those opportunities. Uh, and then you make a genuine long-term change. But I think what we need to keep in mind, despite the good start and the good record that we've had, is that's a 2030-year project, right? You don't, these things are generational. Um, and we need to have that long-term plan, that long-term focus that, as I say, hopefully it sounds like is coming back into the narrative when it comes to this conference. Great, thanks. And, and just in terms of the shorter term, um, you said the, the, the levelling up bill, it, you're confident, will get through the, the legislation to set up the East Midlands Combined Authority will happen. There'll be an election next May for sure. Well, you never say never, but um, it's been through the Lords now. It comes back into the Commons on the 17th of October. So we've got a date in the diary. Yeah, OK, we'll be watching that one. Great. Thanks very much, Ben. OK, Margot, I'd like to turn to you now. Um, so, I mean, you left Parliament in 2019, I think, which was... The, the election when levelling up was, um, as mentioned, a, a central commitment of the government. You've now been a few years based in uh, University of Warwick, uh, working with business there. I mean, what's your take from, 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 from the outside now? I mean, what kind of a story do you think the government has to tell about, about levelling up? And, and also, crucially, do you think it is taking those uh, decisions and, and sticking to them for, for the long term, which... As, as Ben said, is, is quite crucial to making progress. Well, thanks very much, um, Akash, and, and thank you uh, to Atkins Realis for, for laying this event on. Um, yes, it's been an interesting journey for me, going from being a, a minister commissioning things like the rollout of um, broadband and fibre and, and that sort of thing at DCMS, to being on the other end of the telescope, if you like, being 
at a university in the Midlands, working closely with Andy Street and seeing the impact of policies at the local level and how what I think is so vital is that the relationships between local, regional and national government are reset. And yes, I do think the government has got off to a good start in this area. Um, as Ben says, it's a very, very much a long-term commitment. And although the new government came in in 2019, it was soon thrown off course by COVID and many other ruptures that we're all aware of. But underlying it, I think there has been a serious commitment culminating in the bill um, to levelling up with an excellent Secretary of State, uh, Michael Gove. And there, is, there has been funding, Ben's mentioned the funding that's come to his area. In the West Midlands, obviously, we've benefited from being one of the two parts of the country um, that have benefited from trailblazer devolution deals. And um, in this area, of course, um, they have had more devolution than I think anywhere else. Greater Manchester has had responsibility for health as well as skills and the other transport and the other um, infrastructure areas associated with devolution. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about investment and skills um, as um, this agenda has is, is in the process of transforming them at the local level. Um, in, in terms of skills and education, we're an area in the West Midlands with a very strong automotive sector. And um, I chair a, a task force for Andy Street looking to the future of electrification of transport, what that's going to need in terms of skills, supply chains, planning reform, and, and that all those areas. And we're making good progress. On the skills side, what we've found is that most of the skills that these new battery factories are going to require are actually taught at level two to level five. And that is not what the universities teach. That's what FE colleges teach at that level. And FE colleges have not got the money to invest in courses for the future. They have operate on much tighter margins than universities do. Um, so they need, they need help because if, if there isn't a job at the end of the course, then they can't afford to lay it on. Whereas universities can afford longer term commitments to jobs that are coming, but are not necessarily here and now. So what we've done um, with Andy Street is commission work that the university supports around all the FE colleges, whereby we're coaching and training the teaching staff in FE to teach the electrification skills for the auto sector so that when the jobs do come, they are ready. Um, and, and this is going to be different in every region. If you're in the northeast, then the courses will be all about sustainable energy, all about the chemicals industry. Um, if you're in the southwest, they'll have different needs. So that's the importance of this regional um, devolution agenda. That's why it's so important. And I do think that the skills funding that's coming down, uh, the lifetime skills guarantee, that's all now being devolved to the West Midlands. Um, and it will make a huge difference. And the other area is investment. And don't let's forget that the levelling up agenda um, isn't all delivered by the government. It's also delivered by the government in partnership with the private sector. Um, and that's the area where I think the Chancellor is committing the investment zone status to about eight or nine different authorities and, and nations around the country. And the West Midlands has been designated an investment zone. Um, but 
one of the things that is very good about the policy is that it is limiting the tax incentives to two separate two locations per region and that guards against too much fragmentation because i think one risk about the leveling up agenda and devolution is that you'll get some authorities that will want nervously to assign the investment fragment in a fragmented way across their regions rather than looking where it's really needed, where it's going to have the biggest ripple effect. Um, and this policy sensibly limits the tax incentives to two centres, uh, avoids that fragmentation risk. And that is where private sector can come in, attracted by the tax incentives, but more broadly by the policies that devolution allow the region to, to, to basically wrap around the zones um, that are going to benefit the private sector. And as much as the tax incentives, it is the planning, the energy, um, and the skills and the supply chain work that can be done at a local level mm. to support the tax incentives to bring the private sector in. Because we've got ecosystems all over the country, and it's playing to the strengths of individual areas. And I just leave you with one, my best visit ever as a minister was to Emma Bridgewater's factory in Stoke. Um, and it's, uh, it's revived the potteries and ceramics probably more than any government intervention until very recently, just by going and manufacturing in an area where there's latent skills, there's people and know-how, there's connections, there's a bit of a supply chain. And with a big private investor, you can relaunch it um, rather than just starting from scratch and hoping for the best. So it's a really exciting agenda. And I think this government has taken it and is running with it. And whatever happens in the future, I hope that whatever government might come in, they stick with it. Because as Ben says, it's a long term thing. It's a 20 year thing. Um, so it's not something for stop start. Great, thanks very much. Um, okay, so I'm going to move straight on to uh, Fiona, who uh, is based within West Midlands Combined Authority, so may pick up on some of those same themes about um, how devolution has, has enabled the West Midlands to reshape its skills system and, and work with business to improve the economic performance of the region. Fiona. Yes, thank you. And, and thank you, Margot, for such a great setup, a really practical example of what, what we've been doing. So the West Midlands, enormous economic potential, but some real economic challenges and some real labour market challenges as well. So we have among the highest regional unemployment, some real challenges around economic inactivity, particularly around ill health. But one of the potentials of devolution of skills funding, which we've had since 2019, is how we've been able to take that funding, about 170 million pounds a year, and make it work harder. So I'd love to see more funding um, on skills from uh, government, but also from private sector. But actually, if we're going to spend money, we need to spend it really well, and we need to get really good outcomes. And by being able to take a localised, integrated approach um, to a place, then some of the persistent long-term challenges, and they are long-term challenges, um, as uh, Ben's mentioned, we have, um, I think, the best chance of being able to tackle them. So, for example, uh, we've had uh, skills devolution since 2019. As I've said, we've taken that skills funding and we've rationalised who we work with. We really build up our colleges. We look at how we can work well between our colleges and our universities. We work with really niche uh, 
training providers that can get into our specialist sectors, into parts of our community, so that we're working with the right people to strategically meet the skills needs of the region. Actually, we stopped funding qualifications, which some of our employers said didn't get people jobs, weren't um, economically valuable, and really focused on making sure all of our residents get a really good basic education and then progression pathways to develop those higher level skills that, as Margot said, absolutely needed within our economy. So just in these few years, and of course, COVID was in the middle, so I think we've done um, a great job. We have already improved the qualifications profile of the region. It's lower than the UK average. Uh, we've still got a lot more work to do, but we um, have made good progress on that. We have got more people into jobs. We've got more high level skills. And actually, our employers say we're now more responsive to the skills needs that they have, which is helping them grow, giving them skills for improved productivity. We've seen a massive realignment of our skills provision to regional priorities. We've done a lot of thinking and a lot of research, a lot of work with our employers about what are our priorities for where we're going to see economic growth and what skills we need and let's shift our skills provision. Yes, getting qualifications so people are transferable, but there's wider programmes of learning that give people the, the skills, the qualities that are needed to progress at work. We've been able to be much more responsive and flexible. So over COVID, um, as we've had different needs emerging you might remember the HGV uh, crisis actually we got programs up and running in the West Midlands 18 months before the national commissioning was set we'd already um, made inroads into tackling that and we've really prioritized those higher level skills in key sectors where we think there's going to be economic and employment growth now we have got a long way to go it is a long-term challenge but by being able to work more strategically with employers, with training providers, and really direct that provision, we've made a really good start into addressing some of the challenges that we need to tackle if we are going to level up. That's great, thanks. And um, I mean, the most recent uh, devolution deal just this year with West, yes. with West Midlands and Greater Manchester <laughs> Combined Authority, the Trailblazer deals, um, they're going to transfer even further responsibility and, and more yeah. flexibility over spending and skills yeah, systems. So what's, absolutely. what's that likely to enable? So there'll be some more flexibility um, in this parliament, but the, the big prize for us is in the next spending review where um, the combined authority will get a single settlement, which will include skills, and that will enable us to take that skills funding and also align it to housing, to regen, to transport, have more flexibility. And if we've got flexibility, we can really focus that on meeting regional priorities and bringing all of that resource together to making sure people have got the right skills, that we've got good jobs in the region, that people live in the right places, that get transport to the right places. And actually, you can't do that nationally. It is too siloed. It's too big. Actually, regionally, we believe we've got the best chance of tackling this. Great. OK, um, so Tom, uh, I'd like to bring you in now. So, I mean, feel free to respond to, to what you've heard from, from um, your perspective. But also, um, I know you recently wrote a report for, for the IFG called Leveling Up from the Centre, um, which addressed the question of whether Whitehall is set up to deliver levelling up effectively, how it should be reformed to, to do so more effectively. Um, do you want to just talk through some of your findings from that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important to start by saying that this report and our approach is not to say that you can do everything from the centre. And I completely agree with what all the speakers have said so far about the role of further devolution. And that's absolutely a, a path that the government has started going down. And you know, both this government and, and Labour are committed to going further on as well. And that, you know, completing the map, further deepening powers of devolution is really important. 
But even in a world where we were much, if we get to a place where we're much more devolved, there is still going to be a really important role of central government to deliver this kind of cross-cutting, cross-country agenda. Um, and so we, we do need to focus on what central government, what Whitehall and Westminster can do as well. And frankly, the past 30 and 40 years of, of regional policy have been undermined by a series of sort of systemic policy failures, you know, a lack of strategy, a failure to actually define the problem or what we're trying to achieve, and um, the, the problem of different departments just operating in silos and focusing on their own policy, which, which Fiona mentioned. And as others have said already, this does need to be really long-term. The, the solutions are going to be long-term. We're not going to fix this in one parliament or even two. It's a 10, 20-year project. But that means that having policy consistency is really important as well. And these areas in particular, skills probably more than anything else, has been undermined by constant policy churn, the chopping and changing of policy. Um, so what we were looking at is how can we do this better from the centre? What, what can Whitehall do better? And one thing that comes across really clearly, not just in this policy area, but in also in other cross-cutting areas, is that to really drive the kind of cross-Whitehall strategy that you need, it needs to be a political priority, clearly stated both, both externally and internally within government, that people know this is something that the Prime Minister, the Chancellor care about. And so departments who aren't, you know, the levelling up department doesn't have most of the levers in it to deliver levelling up. It's got some housing, but, you know, Department for Transport, Department for Education, and other departments have critical roles to play. And those departments need to know that levelling up, reducing regional inequalities is a priority too. So you need that clear political prioritisation. You then need a set of metrics and targets that clearly define the problem and set that out in the long term. And you need a set of structures that try to coordinate both policy and delivery across Whitehall, whether that be task forces, cabinet committees, and so on. And then you need an overarching strategy that doesn't just treat local government as sort of an optional add-on at the end, but actually from the start thinks about how local government, how, uh, how combined authorities, how devolution fits into that overall strategy. Um, and then it also helps to have an external body that can help to hold you to account. If you look at the climate change example, you know, net zero is quite a similar issue in being a cross-cutting um, agenda and the climate change committees played a really important role. Now, some of that might sound familiar to you if you've read at least a summary of the levelling up white paper. I don't expect you to have read the full, full 300 pages. Because actually, the, this government recognised lots of those problems and in the white paper did try to set out solutions to them. We do have those 12 long-term missions out to 2030. We were promised a cabinet committee. There are other you know, things that have, been, uh, have made, made progress on. The problem that we identified in our report was that since um, the summer of last year, since the changes of government, that, that first test that we set out, is it a political priority for the government, seemed to um, be not being met. And, and the problem is that means that many very good structures that have been set up in the centre around <laughs> delivering the missions, for example, no longer have that sort of backing to really get other people into the room. And I think it's fair to say that levelling up from the centre has felt a lot more like a DLUC only mission in the last um, year or two. Now that means we've continued to make progress on devolution, which is great, but that alone is not going to be enough in the longer term. So what, what, what should the government do if it really wants to make this long-term progress? Well, we, we think the, the missions are a really good thing and actually publicly recommitting to them would be really important. You know, that They're going to be put into statute in the, the levelling up and regeneration bill. That's a good opportunity for the government, not just legally, but also rhetorically to reiterate that they're a priority. And there are also several more boring things that might have a long-term payoff. 
things like we've got a leveling up advisory council, but it doesn't have many of the powers that you might want it to have to really hold the government to account, um, and many other things that you can read our paper uh, for, for the full answer. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, so that's another thing that the leveling up bill, as you, as you say, will will change. I mean, I think it will actually, it, it will require the government to have a set of missions, then to monitor them, to report on them. It's quite an unusual way of, of doing government, actually. I'd, I'd be interested in others' thoughts on whether that's a sensible way to, to proceed. Margo, maybe I'll come to you in a, in a couple of minutes on that point. But first, um, yeah, please to introduce um, Vicky. So, um, Vicky, how important is business and, and companies like Atkins Realis to this agenda? And what can be done to, to improve um, that relationship and, 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 and cooperation between government and the private sector to drive levelling up? Mm, thanks, thanks. So I think business is really important for two key reasons. Um, I'm going to start by introducing Atkins Realis in case you've never heard of us. So we provide end-to-end -end solutions for complex multifaceted projects. We work into sectors like transport, uh, local transport, strategic transport, rail, uh, roads, working to energy, nuclear power, small modular reactors, fusion reactors, um, uh, and, and we provide architecture, buildings and places, services. So we build for, for government as well and we refurbish, refurbish government buildings. So it gives us a really good strategic view of how investments can stimulate places for people. And the other thing we do is obviously we're an enormous employer. We employ 36,000 people worldwide. Okay? And a, a vast proportion of those, probably a good um, 10,000 of those in the UK alone. So we play a really important part in uh, driving productivity investing in skills and driving innovation not only within our own business but in partnership with education providers and small specialist supply chain so let me say a little bit about how those two things converge if you build inclusive communities where people have economic opportunity and access to green space then you are providing core benefits for people and nature and you're supporting health and well-being. If they have good transport links that connect them to jobs, city centres that they can reach reliably within 30 minutes of a commute um, and ideally have dropped children at nurseries and schools first and been available to take care of aging relatives afterwards, then you are increasing the productivity of the region. Now, what we see is that that doesn't always work. And we've done our own research, working with Institute for Government and other partners to really get under the skin of some of these problems. And one of the pieces of research that we did was on um, how young people in the North feel in particular. So those young people, aged 16 to 18, are really disenfranchised. They're really struggling with how they access educational opportunities and what they do with their leisure time. And the 18 to 21-year-olds are really worried about how they access um, employment opportunities and housing. So we know that if we don't provide good connected places, that we experience a drain 
people with skills leave. They leave for places with better productivity and better, um, uh, higher standards of living. And then the result is that those who are left behind do feel disenfranchised. And then we have the problems of the economy that we all face, low productivity um, and, uh, and, and, and that kind of uh, low investment. So what we feel as an employer is that we have a responsibility to invest in social value, to have a social impact, to engage with young people to raise the level of aspiration. We've gone into partnership with an organization called Governors for Schools because we really, really want to shape and inspire the next generation. Um, and we invest in apprenticeships. So we're making sure that we're growing the skills base. And we really try to be inclusive employers. So we really try and recruit from the communities in which our offices are based and, and re recruit a representative uh, cross-section of the community. Um, so, in terms of the contribution that we can make, I hope I've really kind of shone a light on how committed we are as business, businesses, but with businesses with insight that we can help shape the places um, where local government and businesses come together for a more positive future. Thanks very much. And, and um, on this topic of um, what government can do to encourage greater private investment in, in these schemes and, and so on, I mean, as, as, as a big company uh, running these big infrastructure projects and so on, I mean, what are you looking for in terms of uh, government uh, support and, 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 and policy commitments to, to encourage you to make these investments? Well, obviously, um, certainty is really important. So when there are policy commitments, um, it's really important to us because that allows us to invest for the future. Um, but we want to be part of the conversation, really. We want to be part of the conversation early. So too often, business is involved too late. So um, the policymakers and the investors don't have the benefit of our insight. Um, and I was just talking to colleagues earlier about some of the levelling up fund projects that are, that are in existence that have had some funding, but are actually going to struggle to deliver their ambition because as inflation's gone up, the amount that you can do with the, that funding is now less. And we really want to help um, local authorities bring those projects to ground and we can bring in uh, other partners that can help make that happen. So, so my plea would be involve us early and make us part of that conversation really early so that we can help shape the projects and the investments and, and make sure that they deliver the legacy that they set out to achieve. Thanks. Um, Ben, nobody's mentioned HS2 yet. Uh, it's obviously the, the topic of... You're not uh, being the same conference as me then today. <laughs> no one on this panel. Um, so, I mean, how, how, how serious <coughs> of a setback would the cancellation of, of the northern part of HS2 be to or places like the East Midlands? Or are there other investments that you think could, could add the same value that that you'd be looking for government to support instead. There's a reputational and a, an economic side to that. And I think the two are actually different. Um, reputationally, obviously a withdrawal or a backtrack or a, a U-turn or whatever you, it will be portrayed as is, is a negative thing. And from a North and East Midlands perspective, you don't want to see money disappear out of that infrastructure. And you would like to think um, as a nation, after a decade of talking about something, we might eventually you know, 
do it. Um, but at the same time, when you look at the economic realities for the East Midlands, um, I mean, since the integrated rail plan, we've not expected HS2 Eastern Fall to happen anyway. Um, it's not been realistic. Uh, but when you reach East Midlands Parkway, you go into Nottingham and Derby, and the question then is not, um, you know, I, I don't care how, how quickly you can get to Sheffield, it's not really the point. The point is that each station within East Midlands uh, creates a hub for growth and investment and creates one of those opportunities to do that big piece of work around master planning and that, that campus that has all of those things that you describe in terms of productivity and opportunity. Um, the key thing for me as a region is that whatever happens, we get trains to each of those places uh, and it continues to offer us those opportunities at each of those hubs. I don't really care if that's one big train line or lots of local train lines, um, it doesn't matter. And actually in some ways, if you can go um, across multiple regional upgrades across different parts of the region, you can actually have more people access the train uh, as well as get then the transport in and out of those hubs. So I do think there are other options. I think what is important to me in the conversations um, that may or may not happen in the coming days and announcements that may or may not happen in the coming days, I don't think there's anything on the Easter leg, as far as I'm aware. Um, I'll be upset if there is. Um, I think the, the biggest question to me is, if not that, then what? Uh, and I think that'll be what's important to all of us. We all want certainty. I don't mind in some ways if it's certainly this or certainly that, as long as it's certainly something, because it's really difficult to get investors to come in and to put their money into something without knowing exactly what that's going to look mm. like. Um, so one way or the other, if the decision on, on the Manchester leg is we're not going to do some or all of it and we're going to do Northern Powerhouse Rail and we're going to connect the region east to west and whatever, then in some ways, fine. And I know plenty of businesses that will jump on that and be delighted about that we just need to know and we need to have the certainty that's going to happen yeah okay thanks i mean this yeah this this need for certainty i think comes up in any conversation about um how, how to encourage businesses to to invest and the 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 other recent big intervention of the prime minister um that's called into question some of those long-term commitments has been around uh, changing the, the 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 path to net zero um, Margot, I wonder if you have any thoughts on um, that, the, the, the change in terms of the, the timeline for phasing out gas boilers and also the, the timeline to move towards electric vehicles. Well, I can comment more on the electric vehicles side of things. Um, I think uh, it's regrettable that there's been this change because I think that if you want to in inject new commitment to doing something and there doesn't seem to be any doubt in about the Prime Minister's commitment to achieving net zero given that I would far rather have seen a renewed commitment to what the country needs to do to enable the 2030 deadline to be reached because the private sector are right up there for it um, companies like JLR and other large manufacturers of vehicles are already gunning for 2030 and I don't think it will change the fact that it's now 2035 will not change the company's commitments to ha have their sales of um, new cars being electrified by 2030. So if the private sector can meet it, then why can't the government focus more on what the infrastructure needs are going to be, and particularly uh, developing a charging network, which is one of the biggest things that we need to catch up on um, and, and get commitments to regulate the um, development of a, tr a charging infrastructure across the country. It's, it's pretty London-centric at the moment. Mm. And with that, then I think we could achieve our net zero goals sooner rather than relaxing 
um, as the 2035. Uh, on the heat pump thing, I think that's a slight different matter because I think the technology has still some way to advance and it is prohibitively expensive for many properties to upgrade their heating systems. Um, it's very exciting what's going on in, in Coventry. They, the Coventry City Council have partnered with E.ON and created a strategic partnership to make the most of all the um, obligations that energy companies have to meet. Um, and they, I think Coventry will, will probably help more homes decarbonize and install heat pumps as a result of that strategic partnership. So let's see where that goes. But I think the technology has some way to go on that, more than the battery industry, um, which is which is ready, really, for 2030. Yeah, great. Okay, thanks. Well, I'd like to uh, come to the audience now for questions. There should be a mic roving around. So I can see that there's the gentleman here in the second row. And um, yeah, if anyone else would yeah, like uh, to signal, please, uh, yeah, say who you are. Tony Johnson. I, I was a, a councillor in, in uh, Stockport. Uh, and I just like to raise it firstly the issue that the, the uh, pensioners, because I, I do believe that pensions should be a key issue in the levelling up process. We have people who are living, who are working in the public sector or banks or large companies who have good inflation-proof pensions, but the rest of the large proportion of people do not have that. Now, levelling up can't work unless we all actually are brought to the same opportunities. The other question that uh, was, I wrote to raise was there was mention of the um, devolution to Greater Manchester. Now, some years ago, we, were, we had a vote as to whether we wanted to have devolution and have a mayor and we voted against but it was imposed on us by uh, the Conservative government. And nine years ago, health and social care was devolved to Greater Manchester with 6.3 billion pounds. There's been no accountability whatsoever in relation to how that money has spent or in the performance figures in relation to how the 10 boroughs uh, compare. I have, I'm on the, the Dementia Champions uh, Committee, which is uh, chaired by the Commissioner at Stockport, and I've done my own research particularly on dementia. And there is a, although we are quite good in uh, the diagnosis of, of uh, dementia based on the demographics, the fact is that there is a disparity between the lowest. Um, identification and that's uh, Trafford and other uh, and other councils and if you look at for example at the uh, prescribing of antipsychotic drugs for those who are uh, diagnosed as having dementia you'll find that uh, Berry has got the double the rate of Trafford so what we want to do is have some accountability for local people so that we can actually look and see how people are performing. Can I just say very briefly, maybe we should consider the funding of health and social care to come under the national insurance stamp and to actually have separate pension contribution rates for state pensions, which are, and the pensions being related to the contributions. 
Okay, thanks. Uh, do we have any other questions? Yeah, I can see um, yeah, a couple more hands at the back and then I'll come to you, sir. Thank you for that. Uh, once we hear a lot about electrification of motor vehicles and obviously the date being set back from 30 to 35, mm. I understand that. But nobody has been able to give us cost-benefit analysis of going electrification. For example, charging my car at home or at one of these EV stations isn't going to be cheap. And is it going to be cheaper than filling it up with diesel? Nobody has been able to talk about that or say anything at all. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and uh, gentlemen there. Uh, thank you. Uh, Adam Point from Wolverhampton. Um, so I know West Midlands quite well. Um, and I was just going to raise about delivery and the fact that actually one of the major stumbling blocks really locally is, is the time it takes to deliver some of the projects and actually then they sort of get out of kilter with what the wider strategy may be, be needed for the area. But one of the issues there I think is around planning, I work in planning myself and a consultant, is the strategic planning, whether that's a national, regional, local level, is quite disparate. You've got local plans, regional planning has gone, and actually it's that overarching delivery, how all these projects hang together, <coughs> that is actually going to bring that investment in and make a real difference um, in helping people, rather than a more piecemeal project delivery and one-off project funding, I think, and I think that would be my call, so thank you. Okay, thanks. All right, we've got quite a few questions there. Um, okay, Ben, would you like to Yeah, first? I mean, uh, briefly, uh, on the, the first ones there, I think the um, pension is important because you end up in a place where um, the disparity is, is worse because some people are reliant on state pension and then pension and others uh, save during their lifetime. I think we've done some things about that, things like um, workplace pensions and um, auto-enrolment, uh, but there's also the big challenge I think in that is housing because we're increasingly getting into a place where more and more people are still going to be paying rent when they're retired because they're not buying a house and paying off a mortgage. And that's a huge challenge we've not faced um, and, and aren't really looking at facing. And I think housing is hugely important in that challenge and how we look after people in their old age. And on the structure and accountability point, I think that's right. I think we need some consistency though around the, the country. Every area has a different structure of local government and different people accountable for different elements of delivery. And therefore nobody understands how it works. Uh, and so we need to have some element of, of consistent um, delivery and consistent powers so that people can understand who they're holding accountable for what. And I don't think that exists currently. Um, I wanted to pick up on the delivery point, which I think is absolutely bang on. Um, I sat, the last conversation I had about this agenda was with number 10 uh, on a, a board about towns and towns economies uh, and how we tie all of this together. And it's very, very clear whether it's um, the planning strategy um, uh, sits in a different place in a different organisation to where the money has gone for delivery on levelling up, sits in a different place to the regional economy work, which is separate again from DLUC and the things that they're trying to deliver. It's too bloody complicated. And to be honest, they've given all this levelling up funding in my constituency to the district council, um, uh, you know, a hundred million pounds worth of projects to deliver with an annual budget of 12 million. It's way out of their uh, ability and, and um, capacity to actually deliver these projects. Uh, and so for all the funding, you know, some of it's now got spades in the ground, it's taken far longer uh, than it should do. <clears throat> I think the biggest thing we can do to prove to people that levelling up um, is a real thing that they can see over the course of the next 12 months in terms of an election is to deal with delivery and make sure that all these things we've committed funding to have spades in the ground and people can see them happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Vicky, do you want to pick up on some of that as well? Well, I would, but my colleague Andrew Jones is a planning expert and I wondered whether you wanted to come in and um, 
and comments on that. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free, Absolutely. Andrew. <laughs> um, I, I think that, um, well, if you're uh, professionally a planner, then you, you've probably uh, you've probably got it drilled into you a little bit more. But I, I think that that is is a is a big issue around some of the uh, the uh, the leveling up agenda. In the, a, a lot of the programs and policy, uh, sorry, programs and grants are being given in a uh, in some ways in a piecemeal way, and they're not set in the context of a of a of a, uh, of a joined up plan. So the um, so that the responsibility being placed on a district council that may not have everything doesn't have the backup of a, of a, of a, of a strategic authority, whether that's a combined authority or, or, or other to, to support them. There's also there's no join up between one place and another when you know, roads and railways and water pipes and, uh, and um, transmission cables go from one place to another and joining all that up. Will really help if we if we set that out in, in um, some more strategic planning would help us uh, would, would help us be more efficient with our with our investments it would make clear what benefits are coming to, to local communities as well as uh, as well as the relationship between what should be delivered locally what should be delivered regionally and what uh, and where national government should get involved and and, uh, and I think would, would help all of us understand more about the benefits that are coming to local places that's great. Thanks very much. Um, so I'll come. To, I'll come to you in a moment. Um, Margaret, do you want to pick up on any of those questions? There was um, a specific oh, question about the cost benefit cost analysis of yes. switching to electric vehicles, for instance. Yes. I mean, you make a good point. Um, I mean, it really comes down the cost of running an EV in terms of the money it costs you, rather than the emissions it saves you. I, I should add. Um, it really comes down to the the cost of the electricity that goes into the recharging. And it's quite difficult to predict what the cost of electricity is going to be, you know, in a few years time when more and more EVs are on the road. Um, I mean, at the moment you can you can buy a smart charger, which if you have, if there's much of a difference in the price of electricity, depending on the time of day you're, you're using it, then they will automatically default to the cheapest possible tariff. So there's smart chargers that you can get that will help reduce the cost. And who knows what future government's tax plans will be um, in terms of the, the loss of revenue over time from the fuel duty. At some point, the government, whichever party is in power, will be looking to replace that as we lose the revenues from fuel duty. So it's a little bit difficult to predict. Um, but at the moment, um, it is really just there's no tax, uh, you know, because you're not filling up with, with gas. So it's just the cost of electricity, which um, feels as if it must be cheaper than um, the cost of diesel. I don't know about that. There are a lot of problems with a lot of issues. Electricity is not cheap at all. I mean, at home, I want to charge my car. It's probably taking about seven, eight hours. Now, yeah. Yeah. There's a big difference okay, yeah, between... Thanks. I think, yeah. yeah, we don't necessarily yeah. have the, the figures right to hand. So, so, sorry, sir, I think we're going to move on, if that's okay. That the government, or yourself, or the government particularly, should come up with a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, I think... Okay, thanks, sir. I think we're in agreement. We need to know that, yeah, we probably do need to have clearer data on some of this. I think there's also a question about overall 
electricity supply obviously needs to be expanded massively. We know that mm. to ensure that people can can make that switch in, in due course. Sorry, did you want to finish your point? Or? <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I yeah. think probably move on to another question. Yeah, okay. Um, Fiona, Tov, do you want to come in on any of those questions we've had? So I think the point about accountability is really important that as we devolve responsibilities and funding, then we do want to make sure and I'm sure none of our mayors are afraid of being accountable. I think the challenge is sometimes it feels like um, I'm sure mayors would sometimes feel that they're being accountable for things that they don't necessarily have the right levers or funding for. And some of that's about the complexity of um, what is devolved to different places or whether there's sufficient funding, but also that really important connection to health. A very important example, you might have some uh, localised health funding, but perhaps not the levers around some of those drivers of health inequalities. And I think one of the things we if we want to tackle some of those very persistent issues, then we also need to think about building the capacity and capability of our regions to be able to tackle um, those problems um, holistically. Thanks. Okay, um, I'll take the final questions and then Tom, I'll let you have a final word as well. Oh, yes, the, the mic may come forward. Well, we are recording this, uh, so there comes the mic. <laughs> Thank you very much. When it came to this, I didn't know whether it was going to be about geographical or incomes and capital. Um, obviously, I can't ask two questions. Lot, one would be preferred. So I'll go to the geographical one. Um, when President Xi wanted to irrigate the north of his country, he just did so. He didn't need 10 white papers before he got approval to do it. So if we all woke up one morning and Rishi Sunak, um, who was the president of our country, if you can imagine that, decided to move the House of Commons to Sheffield, I wonder what would happen. <laughs> okay, well, that's a particular way of putting that. I think that the gist of your question was, yeah, what, 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 why is it that such decisions are so difficult to take in this country? Quicker, yeah. lighter, sharper, keener. Mm. HS2 has got to turn something, doesn't it? should have started from Manchester. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Tom, do you have thoughts on that? Um, sure. I mean, I, th I think cer certainly there are, there are things that take too long to do in this country. I mean, there there are also constraints that you know democracy apply. You know, lots of the issues that um, slowed HS2 down, for example, are certain local planning disputes. Um, you know, in, in, and I think you know, there are certainly issues with our planning system that we need to fix. But in those places, they would say they were legitimate local concerns and needs to be dealt with. And if if they just woken up one day and there were spades in the ground already and there was a track going through, through you know, quite quite near their house, they'd have something to say about it. So, you know, that, that those are genuine difficulties. I, I think there's a way that we can set strategy much more clearly so things aren't happening so so randomly and we're not chopping and changing things that will then help on the delivery side as well. But I think unfortunately that's not an overnight thing. We you know the government does need to lay the groundwork of really what strategy their, their sort of overarching strategy looks like and how different projects fit within that. Okay, so on that I also yeah. think politicians need to be braver. And if I had one gripe on 13 years in government, it's that we've not unpicked some of the bureaucracy around some of those decisions. In fact, in some cases, we've made it worse in the sense that if there have been big, difficult political choices to make, we've created an independent review with an independent chairman to examine it for two years and tell us what the statistics-based outcome should be. When in some cases, just make a bloody political decision and decide. You don't need the stats because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I think we need to do more of that if we want to see more efficient and effective delivery of any major infrastructure project, because otherwise, just everything takes too long. Does that reflect your experience yeah, as a minister? Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. Um, I think that political courage and strong leadership 
um, is, is needed and it hasn't always been forthcoming. And we do need to fix that. There's obviously a balance between none of us want to live in a dictatorship. And of course, these decisions are easy in a dictatorship, um, but they don't necessarily make them right. And uh, But we've got it too far in favour of every possible local concern taking the system for a ride indefinitely. And we've got to get more of a balance back. And you're quite right in the thinking behind your question, I think. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I, you, you have a question, do you, sir? Okay, um, I think the last question. It, it's then. a little bit of a challenge for the party, really. But if I was living in one of the areas that needs leveling up um, and how I might look at the world, and this is being deliberately provocative, so take it more as a generalization. Um, but we've got a plan by 2050 to go net zero, which at current costings is four and a half trillion. We have just announced. Um, for all of the UK levelling up fund of one billion and what that might do. I, and I, I just think it scales the challenge of if we're really going to break through with the electorate and help those poor areas. I am from Yorkshire, so I, I get it to some degree. It, it's for Ben and his colleagues. It, are we really doing enough? And are you comfortable with that balance? Um, uh, no, but I think the, there is... Um, sometimes it doesn't do us favours to, to bump things into brackets i think a huge amount of the work on clean energy for example will be integral to leveling up you know when you talk about opportunities in, in my community we've got hydrogen at toyota just down the road we've got step fusion 20 minutes the other way we've got modular um, nuclear at rolls royce 20 minutes that way they're the jobs that are going to make my constituents better off and give them the skills and and, and the opportunities they haven't got job. so if you build energy you're obviously adding green energy No, but it's different, isn't it? And, and they are communities. You know, since the pitch shot in Mansfield 30 years ago, we've not been working in that sector. You know, those, it's massively um, reliant on low-paid and secure work. A lot of it's been retail and that's disappeared. So, you know, you are adding those kinds of jobs in the places. I know nationally they might not be, there might be replacements, but in a place where they don't exist now. Uh, and that's the rebalancing to me. So I think some of that, however many trillion, um, and I hate the phrase net zero, by the way. I think the first thing that, um, pops into my constituents' minds when they hear that language is how much is that going to cost me? Um, and, and so a slightly different Margot in the sense that I think that resetting has been important in the last few weeks because you have to bring people with you to do that's that. Right. You can't do yeah. stuff to people and that's what it feels a bit like sometimes. Um, so I think that's right. But I do think that all of those agendas, whether it is major infrastructure that might not be badged as levelling up or whether it is those kinds of jobs and opportunities, it's all going to have that impact. So I think you've got to see it as a whole. Great, thanks. Okay, I think we are pretty much out of time. Um, I'm afraid, so we don't have time for any more questions. I do apologize. Um, so, sorry, we're pretty much out of time. Apologies for that. Um, I mean, if, if any of us has a very final comment, Vicky, do you, do you have a final thought you wanted to leave us with? Well, I suppose, sorry, my observation would be how aligned we are in many of our perspectives, whether we're from business or for, from the public sector. And um, so I think it's a real uh, highlight for me to be a part of this conversation, to know that we can work together on these common issues. A lot of the things that we want to tackle, we know we can tackle together. And um, so I'm really uh, very grateful for uh, my fellow panellists for sharing their views so openly. Thank you. Great. Okay, so thank you all for coming. Thank you to the panel. Thank you. Thank you.